And uh, we just <clears throat> end with a short version of the metta practice, loving kindness. May I show all the love I have here, now, and all the time. May I show compassion in any way I can to everyone who suffers, including me. May I be joyful about the good things that happen to any of us. May I respond with equanimity, serenity, and courage to all that happens. Anybody still need handouts? There should be two. There's another one of these. Does everybody have? Okay. You should have um, in the house of the healthy psyche and ways to show integrity and loving kindness. Everybody all set? No. Okay, and uh, our book for today is The Five Longings, which is in the bookstore. Uh, The subtitle is What We've Always Wanted and Already Have. And I'll be explaining that. And the specific five longings that we'll look at are for love, meaning, freedom, happiness, and growth. Also, um, I gave other classes that are sometimes 12 weeks long, 12 lectures, or some are eight. And there are some flyers on the back table about those. So if you're interested, I brought a few copies. There are MP3s on a DVD that you can download. And they're also on the website, which is daverico.com. And finally, uh, some of my books are in other languages, including Spanish. So those are also on the table in the corridor, if you're interested. So I'd like to begin with just uh, this first paragraph or so from the introduction. That gets us started. And I begin with a quote from Shakespeare from Antony and Cleopatra. This is Cleopatra speaking. I have immortal longings in me. 
What a great way to start the day. (laughs) We all sometimes feel that there's something missing in our life. We long for whatever might make up for the lack, yet rarely with totally satisfactory results. Something like the first noble truth of Buddhism, which is that everything is ultimately unsatisfactory. How long have we longed for that which keeps evading our grasp? The fruit far out of reach, the ship that has vanished over the horizon, the lips that have declined our kiss. The impossible to hold on to is precisely what arouses our deepest longings. What a strange paradox, or ironic rather. Here we are longing most for what's the most difficult to hold on to. What hoax makes us ache for what we are unable to obtain and not equipped to keep? What is it in us that makes us spread, as Emily Dickinson says, our narrow hands to gather all of paradise? Why are there longings, hungers in us that don't go away, even at banquets? These are the questions we'll try to look at today. So let's begin with the word longing, which I would like to distinguish from the word desire. And this is dictionary definition. By the way, the reason it's called a longing is because it lasts a long time. It lasts for a lifetime. (laughs) So it's a yearning for something that is ultimately unattainable in any final or full way. For instance, a longing for the past. You would never be able to repeat the past, so it's unattainable, yet you still long for it. Whereas a desire is for something that is attainable. You may or may not attain it, but it certainly is attainable. I'll give examples in a final or full way. So for instance, if I have a desire for a flashlight and I buy one, I certainly have attained it and now I have obtained it in a final and full way. I won't keep wanting it because now I have it. But if I have a longing for love and you love me in this particular moment, Even during the moment, I will still be longing for more love. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just uh, an acknowledgement of how there's some type of yearning in us that doesn't allow for full satisfaction. And the origin of my book is precisely that realization in me I thought, what is it about us that would make us keep longing for things that 
or experiences that um, could never be totally taken care of. It makes us very interesting. So that's the interest that started me off. I want to say one more thing about desire just while we're here. Uh, It comes from the Latin word desiderium. This part means star. So it was believed that you were supposed to align your desires to your astrological chart. So this Capricorn is supposed to want what Capricorns are supposed to want, not what Libras are supposed to want. Get what I mean? (laughs) So it's very interesting, isn't it? Like they really uh, had such a, the ancient people, they had such a, sense of the importance of the stars and the zodiac that even they even wanted to align their desires to the to their own chart it it kind of shows that there was a spiritual connotation that we no longer have so for instance there's s i d e r When you do this, you get together and you consider what the stars want you to do. That's consider. And then their other word for star is aster, like the flower aster. So if you don't follow the stars, you get dis. Aster. Interesting, isn't it? Aster, asteroid. And in keeping with this spiritual sense, um, many spiritual writers say that all longings are ultimately longings for God. That would be very easy to understand if you go to William James and his book, the Varieties of Religious Experience, a set of lectures he gave at Harvard, he says, the easiest uh, summary word for God is the more, with a capital M. That we're seeking more than what we can see. We're trusting more than we might even experience. We're believing that there's more of a presence even when we feel absence. That more is the human version of a higher power or God. And um, since longing is never fully or finally satisfied, it is certainly about more. I want more love, more freedom, more meaning, etc. So we start out this way with just a sense of of the difference between a longing and a desire. And I was going to give some examples. So 
a desire for a relationship, I'm desiring something that's attainable, but the longing that I will feel in the relationship is for uh, a sense of special presence, which I'll talk about shortly, that uh, feels to me like real love and feels like it's really meaningful. And in it, I have freedom. And in it, I can grow. And in it, I'm happy. So all five of the longings. So sometimes it's a desire matching up with a longing. Let's take another example. Let's say I have a, when I say I have a desire for love, behind it is the longing for a special way in which the love will be expressed to me that only I will understand. Because love is a signature experience. It's not like the flashlight. Flashlight looks a certain way and has to have some way of projecting light. It can have a diff- very different styles, but the basic concept is the same. But with love, starting off with that as our first topic, you basically feel it most powerfully in the way you first experienced it. So if you look back into your childhood, even while I'm talking, and you're thinking of that person who definitely loved you so entirely, so unconditioning, unconditionally, so unquestioningly, that way of being loved that he or she showed you is indelibly imprinted in every cell of your body. Every single person in here has a little different spin on what the love felt like. For instance, the love might have felt like uh, somebody who stands behind you, takes your part, someone who appreciates you, someone who's always with you as you go through things, somebody who physically holds you with such memorable affection, you'll be longing for that all your life. And so when you say, I want a relationship, you're actually saying, I want this particular style. Everybody get it? The example that comes to my mind is um, a bit humorous, like I'm from an Italian background, so when I go to an Italian restaurant, good to me, this is a good restaurant, good to me is they made it the way grandma made it. <laughs> That's not really right. I should say our, our cooking is regional, so southern cooking is different from northern, etc. In fact, each town has different recipes. So it was actually a good restaurant. It's just from a different part of Italy than I'm familiar with. Follow what I mean? Mm -hmm. So when I say 
It's only good when it's like grandma's. It's not quite right. But that is what's happening when it comes to love. So it would really be important in a relationship to tell your partner, this is what feels like love to me. When you stay right here with me and just listen to me without judgment, I feel loved in that moment. That's what I would like to have from you. Imagine being brave enough to say that because here you are being vulnerable. It's the only way love could happen, that you would allow yourself to be vulnerable enough to ask for something. It's usually something very simple. I've seen that over and over again working with clients as a psychotherapist, that what the other person is asking isn't very much. It reminds me of a film I just saw. It's an old film, but uh, anyway, it's Paul Newman and... Uh, the, the he and his father are in the military. And the father is a general and, and uh, Paul Newman is like a, maybe a captain or a major. Anyway, in the course of the film, we realize that Paul Newman is lamenting the fact that his father was never really there for him. Father was always absent, or if he was present, he was kind of um, formal and demanding, and he didn't really show Paul Newman much affection. Father was played by Walter Pigeon. Anyway, there's a scene that I am about to mention that makes the point I was just presenting. They're sitting in a car in the front seat and father is in the driver's seat. Paul Newman is in the uh, passenger seat. And Paul Newman starts to cry and Spontaneously, his father puts his hands kindly on his head and he, he, Paul Newman, leans his head on his father's shoulder, if you can picture that. And Paul Newman continues to cry, but now in a, in a way that shows that he's feeling comforted. And this is what the father says. He's hand on his head, and he says, oh, is this all you wanted? I I don't remember the name of the film, but (laughs) it's not memorable, but um, (laughs) that's just this point I was trying to make, and it occurred to me in that moment, I thought, oh yes, it's always the simplest thing, like that, like that little moment of comfort, and we remember it for a lifetime, And we know exactly what it feels like. And we can't be talked out of it. And we can't be told that love is something else. So look at the situation in a relationship. Here are two people, each of whom has his own signature style. And uh, the other person doesn't quite know the signature unless you let him or her know.
So a big part of our topic today is how to express our longings to others while always knowing that no one can fulfill them perfectly. It's such a deeply Buddhist concept. Yeah. Oh, hold it. We have a microphone for... So yeah, if you have questions along the way, just raise your hand. But I'll also check in with you about questions. Uh, Right here. Oh, yeah. I don't think... Okay, thank you. Uh, Paul Newman's character... Okay, I'll just call him Paul Newman. In that movie, like, um, let's say he had maybe some kind of early childhood attachment thing with his dad, and Mm -hmm. then he always craved that touch, that longing. Is this going to heal him a little in finding a woman that doesn't need to do that for him in a way that he doesn't even understand what he needs because his dad did it? Yes, you're bringing up an important point, which is when this love was received in early life, when this experience of love happens for us, then as you just said, ever after we will be able, and this is a wonderful human, uh, sorry, adult quality, we will reconcile ourselves to a moderate amount of fulfillment from other adults. Because moderate is the only kind of fulfillment that other adults can give us. Or even we give ourselves. There will be moments in which it feels more than moderate. It feels like, oh, this is the whole thing. I love it. But it's not going to last very long. Buddhist concept of impermanence. When you were fulfilled by feeling loved you receive not only the love, but the capacity to be satisfied later. Capacity for satisfaction with what is limited. Imagine having that quality. I'm able to be satisfied with what's limited That would be the essence of happiness. Instead of I can only be satisfied with what's perfect. When the, so this is when the needs were met, needs for love. I'm continuing to respond to the question. When the needs were unmet, then something different happens. We are left with no capacity for fulfillment, and that becomes the bottomless pit, can never get enough. 
So here we are craving something that we actually can't be satisfied with because the only way to be satisfied is with the essentially limited. And so if you don't have that capacity, then you're always out there seeking what um, you really want. And yet at the same time, you don't have the capacity for the kind of fulfillment that adults need to reconcile themselves to. Let's take this poem by Emily Dickinson in which she um, kind of expresses how she does this. Yeah, question. Okay, so we'll have a question and then I'll go to the poem. So are you saying if you're unmet, then there's no capacity within us to develop that for ourselves? Yes, that'll be my next thing, how to develop it if it isn't there. (laughs) Fear not. I'll be fulfilling all longings today. (laughs) So here's her poem, which is very touching, and it'll take us into how you make up for what was missing, because it has something to do with grief, mourning the loss, and moving through it. Um, Let's see, I guess the poem is pretty easy to understand, but I'll comment on it after. Uh, The title of it is A Loss of Something. So this would be the loss of the kind of love that she really wanted. A loss of something ever felt I. The first that I could recollect bereft I was of what I knew not too young that any should suspect. A mourner walked among the children. I, notwithstanding, went about as one bemoaning a dominion, herself the only prince cast out. Elder today, a session wiser, and fainter too as wiseness is, I find myself still softly searching for my delinquent palaces. And a suspicion like a finger touches my forehead now and then that I am looking oppositely for the sight of the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is within. So she's saying, oh, I, I, when I look back at my childhood with my brother and sister, One of the three of us, that's I, was actually a mourner because I was not getting my needs met. So I went out and I looked around. I tried to find the palace of happy home and I looked everywhere for it and I never succeeded in finding it fully or finally. And then I realized I need to start right here in my own work. The poem was written in Civil War times. So ancient 
I mean, all the way back, people had this realization. Everybody follow? Question? Yes. Um, so to go one step before this first love, mm -hmm. um, what about the situation, tragic, that um, the child does not, for a lot of different reasons, receive love, just the opposite? Then how does this f sort of flow from that? There the, is no love. Then you would wind up without the capacity for fulfillment of the, of the longing or desire later in life right. until you had done certain work, which we'll talk about. Okay. Okay. So there's the possibility of healing. Yeah. So this is the secure attachment on this side. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes anxious and disheveled <laughs> when it hasn't happened. David? Uh, yeah. Hi. Hi. One of my first teachers was Bob Rosenbush, and I remember he used to say often that we could spend our whole lives bringing compassion to whatever arises. And so it just seemed like this was a good point to bring in, that when you talk about the bottomless pit and kind of reconciling with those things, I mean, I've spent the better part of a decade, my practice has been about bringing compassion to those places, so it just feels important to bring that piece in at this point. Absolutely. That'll be part of what I'll be talking about. I was just thinking of one other example, so I'll throw that in before we go to this part. Um, <coughs> all the cats I've ever had have been Siamese. I don't know if this is one of their qualities, but I'll tell my sh very short story. So uh, with this particular one, I would be lying on the couch on my back watching the TV. She would jump up onto my chest. And then she starts the pushing like this with her paws, right about here. And while she's pushing, she's salivating. <laughs> it's very unpleasant. <laughs> but you can't move her off. You have to wait for the ritual to happen. So she does her little ritual and she keeps going. And then she just gives up and she sits on me. So that's that. So anyway, that's the story. So when I went to the vet, I told him this story. I said, what's the problem? Because I'm feeding her and so forth. And he said, well, they do this when they were taken away from their mother too early. They didn't get the full experience of nursing which they know they were supposed to get and so they're needing the, the breast to get the milk to come out and they're thinking that it is going to come so they start to salivate I thought what an example of my whole thing <laughs> here she is looking from the wrong source. <laughs> For legitimate need. But it just can't happen. That's an important thing for us to kind of keep in mind. All right. So if, since 
we instinctively knew that we needed love and all the other longings to be fulfilled in some way, then not having them fulfilled would be felt as a loss. So remember the poem starts, a loss of something ever felt I. I always felt like something was missing or lost. So let's say loss, missing. And the human, in fact, the all of us um, mammals come equipped with a technology for dealing with loss. We really do. It's called grief or mourning, bereavement. We have it in us to be able to grieve a loss. It's the only way we could ever process the experience and move through it. You can't just sit around and resent the one who didn't give you what you needed for the rest of your life. That will never bring you peace. But you have something in you. You have this possibility of experiencing grief. A mourner walked among the children. She already knew she was a mourner even in childhood. This grief, first of all, is obviously about feelings. What are these feelings? We're sad that it isn't there to be had. We're angry at those who seem to be depriving us of it, namely our parents. And we're afraid that we'll never find it elsewhere. These three feelings comprise the experience of grief in the first part of the process. So I try to find some little um, practice that would help me with this, which I think is in the book, um, but I can tell you now. The way I'm doing it now is whenever I have a memory of something from childhood in which there was deficiency, deficit, abuse, something that is negative, something that brings up uh, negative feeling, I freeze frame and I let myself feel the grief. I ask myself the three questions. How was I sad then and how am I sad now? And then I just pause and see if that feeling is going to come through. You can't make it happen, but you can open to it. Then I say, how was I angry then? How am I angry now? Let the feeling come through. How am I uh, afraid? How was I afraid then? How am I afraid now? And I picture, when the feeling does come through, I picture it as lightning going through a lightning rod and going back into Mother Earth. Let that feeling come through and let Earth 
absorb it and turn it into something that helps things grow. So I'm just letting it go through and I'm giving it back to the earth rather than holding on to it. So it's, these are supposed to move through and unfortunately it doesn't just happen once and you're done with it. It's a lifelong experience. You'll feel grief about something from your early life, even at the end of your life. Different levels of realization come through, and, but we bring these feelings to them. This helps us relate to the loss instead of simply resent it. I can relate to my loss when I do this. What is this? Let myself feel the sadness, anger, and fear as opposed to resent those who created the loss. As Paul Newman was doing in the film, he was resenting his father until he finally had that helpful experience. So we want, we want to move from resent to relate. Secondly, as I do this practice, a grace opens up and I notice, I can't make this happen, but I notice that it's happening. I'm trusting that this does happen. I notice that little by little, I start to let go of resentment, of grudge, of ill will, and of the need to retaliate, which is a normal part of um, avoiding the grief. I'll come back to that. Anyway, I let go of resentment, grudge, toward my parents or toward anyone. This could apply also to a former relationship. You think of some way in which your former partner was not there for you or was abusive. You do use the same practice. How was I sad then? How am I sad now? Etc. Gradually, you're letting go of these four, resentment, grudge, ill will, and retaliation. And the English word for letting go of those four is forgiveness. So what you're doing is finally forgiving even the unforgivable. It's not excusing anything. It's entirely in you. You know, in English, we have a distinction between two words. I'll just mention this and then I'll come back. So we use two words. Pardon is one. Forgive is the other. To pardon is to excuse one from the consequences. I have committed a crime disobeying traffic laws. This comes with a fine. The judge pardons me 
So he pardons me. Two people. He pardoned me. I'm still guilty, but he excused me from the consequence of my crime. But he can't forgive me. That's a whole other experience. Forgive happens within you. It's not from someone to you. It's actually an internal experience. Someone can forgive you because he did something within himself. But uh, forgiveness happens inside the person, not from, not from to in the same way that pardon does. A little hard to explain, but you get the concept. So the second step of the work, what is this work? It's the work to make up for the no capacity the bottomless pit now starts to loosen up and we start to notice that a capacity is growing in us that lets us finally feel some satisfaction in our relationships with others because look at what has happened. We got in touch with our feelings. That's our psychological work. We forgave. That's our spiritual realization. That led to the, the restoration of the original capacity that belonged to us to be able to be satisfied with a moderate amount. And when that happens, we're in the fourth and final stage, which is to get on with life. No longer blaming our parents or anybody, or former partners. Or if we work backwards, could it be that I avoid all of this so I don't have to get on with life? If this is the result, then that must be what I was avoiding when I didn't do this part. And, and along those lines... The standard way of dealing with a loss, the, shall we say, more primitive style, is just to retaliate, get back at the person who deprived you. Deprive him or, or hurt him in some way. It, it would be another avoidance of grief. Shakespeare expresses this in just one line. In Troilus and Cressida. The hope for revenge shall hide our inward woe. The hope for revenge shall hide our inward woe. Woe means grief. He has said it all, one line. That we will use retaliation So every time you retaliate, always ask yourself the question, what grief am I avoiding? To get back at someone is the equivalent of not being vulnerable enough to show how sad, angry, and afraid you are. And by the way, we don't express these three feelings to our 
parents. This is our own work and our own therapy. The reason we're not expressing it to our parents is because who they are now is not who they were then. That would confuse the whole thing. Make it That would make it look like they're still in the picture. But this way is the adult way. It's my picture now. They're just with me in memory. Okay, questions about this? So this is the answer to how does one... Um, restore the capacity and it won't be restored perfectly but it will be stored well enough so that you could then have a healthy relationship or another way of saying it is if you do have issues what I call growing pains and growing up um, then you would have to work on them before you could have a healthy relationship This, by the way, is one of the topics in the um, talks that I have on the CDs in the in the uh, here today. Um, Okay, question. I I have a question. Yeah, hold it. So let's start with you, and then we'll come up. Yeah, I I expect and hope that this is something you'll get to eventually. But I'm I'm very interested in how all of this plays out and how you've learned in your own life and clinically, I guess, how how sexuality just gets so knotted up in all of this and how it seems to be kind of among the more recalcitrant forms of of our trouble. I'm walking away because I don't really have an answer, Uh, (laughs) but I'm still going to try, but go ahead. So anyway, I, I just hope that that there is something to say about that. Yeah, let me say this now, and then we could talk about it a little more after, because we, we want to stay on this part of the topic. So desire for sex, I'll talk about the two different kinds of desire shortly. So desire for sex is holding the longing for love. And of course, we could confuse the desire and the longing and just think, well, I'll just make do with the sex part and that'll feel like or look like love. It's kind of a fictional picture of it. So what we're trying to do is have an integration so that the love and the sex go together. But I'll say a little more about that, and I have a, do have a little section in the book on this topic. So I'll come back to it. It was a good question. Hi, nice to see you. You used a real interesting word um, when you were going through the paradigm, and that was grace. And I'm wondering about the place, first of all, your definition of grace, and second of all, um, how grace um, is part of this paradigm. As I look at this, I'm thinking it might be a bridge between one and two. How do you get from processing the grief to letting go? And you said, I don't know exactly, something like grace enters or... Mm -hmm. So, 
So that interests me, and that word in particular interests me. Okay, good. So the first part is a practice. That's your sadness, anger, and fear. Even there, you have to let the feelings come through. You can't make them happen. Second part happens to you, what I call a grace. I'll explain that. That's the letting go and the opening of the capacity. And then the fourth part is your own practice. Get on with your life. Make the decisions that show that you can still be who you are no matter what wounds you're carrying around. Now the wounds have become thresholds into the next part of the journey. A grace is a special gift, unmerited, unearned, that comes to us seemingly out of nowhere, but in religious terms, it would come from God or the Holy Spirit. And um, you just suddenly feel more wisdom or more courage. You feel more equipped to be in the world in a healthy way. And all of us have had this experience. Sometimes it comes as a synchronicity, an unusual coincidence that opens up something for us. And we know we didn't make it happen or do something to merit it. But... uh, it did happen nonetheless. So that's what's meant. The, the word grace is from the Latin word gratia, which means free or gift, gratis or gratitude. And uh, we could only be thankful for this part, the part where grace kicks in and on our toes for the practice part. So my belief is that the grace represents the spiritual dimension of the work, comes through us, to us, in us, and we're thankful. The practice is what we roll up our sleeves and do. So using a Buddhist example, practice of sitting, that's something I do, But the experience of enlightenment comes through me. I didn't make it happen or merit it. That would be a grace. Question right here. Oh, okay. Let's start here and then here. Thank you. Um, Yeah. uh, A lot of relationships uh, come across with anger and fear. um, And it seems like they're skipping the sadness. They just get into that feeling of being afraid or getting that feeling yes. of being angry. And, uh, uh, and then the other question I had too, uh, besides recognizing that, is um, uh, sometimes people are just in such a, a denial. And, I, and I, am I correct in saying that that's a fear when they're in denial? It would be a fear of facing the truth and a fear of vulnerability because grief makes us terribly vulnerable. Look, it's doing two things at once. It's helping us let go of whatever we've been holding on to. And it's equipping us for true intimacy, which could only happen through vulnerability. You can see why we would secretly avoid it. 
because one, it's scary to do this kind of work, and two, it's scary to be vulnerable in any relationship. Yet it's essential if the relationship is to take on any depth. And longings reach into the depth part of ourselves, whereas desires are more superficial. The desire for a bicycle is not as deep as the longing to go on a pilgrimage. Both have to do with going somewhere, but the first one is kind of flat compared to the second one. Oh, yeah, right here. Uh, I think what I found out in my journey, two things. One is that uh, uh, forgiveness doesn't mean you forget. That you still remember, I think. And what really helped me to let go was someone dying. Because there was no hope at that point that that person was going to change in any direction. But it took me that, the dying of this poor creature, to really, you know, get it. And it seems like it'd be nicer to be able to do things before people die, (laughs) to really begin to forgive. But it's it's an irony. I found it 87, and I remember going to you, David, years ago with the gay husband, but uh, and you said, "What a blessing! You won't have to take care of it when it really, you know, you won't at the end of its life." And, and he was right. You were right. <laughs> um, yeah, I like what you're saying, of course. And what changes? You don't forget, but the original events become facts, like newspaper facts like headlines they no longer have the editorial section (laughs) what mommy and daddy did when you think back when you were 22 brings up a lot of feeling and charge after you do this work you still remember it but only as a fact it no longer has the power to make you do something or instigate a charge. See the difference? It's a very mature 22-year-old. Even that, yeah. We have some other questions, So, but first I, I want to share this other poem I happen to be thinking of because we want to <clears throat> keep reminding ourselves that this longing for love, which is the first topic that we're looking at today um, is not so straightforward. There are a lot of fears that surround it. So take this poem by George Herbert. This goes back to 17th century. I think it's fairly understandable. The word meat at the end, M-E-A-T, 
refers to the Eucharistic communion, the eating of Christ's body. And the, uh, and the poem, the poet himself is a priest. Love bade me welcome, but my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. You shall be, he said, love. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? True, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. Ah, you must sit down, said love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. And that sitting goes with our kind of sitting, as I think of it nowadays. And that would be the only way to do it. Like, you would push aside all the fears, as the poet is doing, when he says, I gave up arguing anymore with the love. And I just sat there. I just sat. And I just let it happen. So that would be the only answer. Sometimes that's all the practice is. Just let it happen. Okay, we had another. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. This, I think this ties into what you were just saying, but I was going to ask when you've done quite a bit of work and you are at like number, I'm not saying it's sequential or anything, at capacity um, and going on with your life and you still have a longing, I would guess it is, to be with a partner or a, a lover. Is that something that if it hasn't happened for you, that you, the grace I mean, you, you prepare yourself for it. And, I mean, there's no guarantee that it'll happen. But, so, is, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out, then do you trust? Or what do you do? Or do you do nothing? Or do you sit, like you were saying? Yeah, you simply sit and you let it, a light upon you. But I'm not fully in agreement that it doesn't ultimately happen. It's, It's more likely to happen when we continually open to it. Our loving kindness practice helps us do that. As well as these other practices that I put on this, uh, 
handout, which we're going to go to later. Can I can I make a comment? Yes, <laughs> Mike, Mike person. Yeah. Um, isn't it also about how we define love? I mean, romantic love is one kind of love, um, and the love of your parents, if you're lucky enough to have, you know, solid love from your parents. Um, so the longing for a partner maybe can, for someone can be dissipated by recognizing other forms of love in everyone and every day <clears throat> and that type of thing. Just yes. In other words, you would overlook all the other ways that the longing could be fulfilled. And obviously we're much better off if we continually open to those other possibilities rather than demanding it only happen in accord with the picture in our mind of Mr. Right or Miss Right. Uh, yeah. Question, thank you. Um, in talking about sadness, anger, and fear as the three components of grief work, in my yeah. experience, they all came together. And I've done a lot of work around that. But some people, friends, say, you know, well, I really feel the sadness, but I'm not in touch with the anger and the fear. And um, it's my thought that they're, they're a package deal. Yeah, you can't I, really just do part of it. Yes, what are your thoughts about that? I agree. I think it's in there somewhere. And you're just not, <clears throat> you're not expressing it in the sort of florid, obvious way that you would imagine it. But I agree with you that uh, all three happen at once. Be hard to be sad about something and not angry that it isn't happening, and vice versa. So you don't have to worry about that part. It was yeah. Oh wait, uh, Beverly. Let's get some new people that haven't asked. And way in the back, the woman with the uh, brown sweater. Beverly? This is a non-question. I'm going to advocate for myself and, and wonder if during lunch, um, if I were outside, if there were others interested in kind of sharing and support around this question of longing, unfulfilled longing for relationship as kind of a lunchtime little pool. I would put that out there, having longed without relationship for 40 years. That's the way to do it. Put it out there. Uh, Is this on? Thank you, Beverly. Very good idea. Yeah. There's a couple of points. Uh, One, um, this may not be about love, but another longing Yeah. in in my personal experience. It seems like there's just some things that are archetypal that you come in with, possibly, and they seem to be longing through you and you're carrying this energy Mm -hmm. so there's an awareness that it may not be as personal but it still can be profound and it still can be insistent and so it does feel sometimes like there's something larger that's kind of working through you Um, the other thing I noticed there's a lot of wounded perception and decision making so you actually may have what you long for, but only in retrospect do you see it. You know, you don't know what you've got. 
till it's gone. Mm. So then that, that's kind of a wounded perception. Yeah, I did have it, but why, you know, why didn't I see it at the time? Yeah, it's a mystery, isn't it? And what you're bringing up fits with our subtitle, What We Always Wanted and Already Have. <laughs> because we, we do have love in us, and, and there's meaning in us, there's freedom in us, happiness and growth. The things we long for are um, almost as if um, we're carrying the longings of all creation. In fact, St. Paul says, all creation is groaning. It's it's, uh, all groaning with longing for its fulfillment. And and those uh, groans are happening within us. Okay? So... I want to say just one more thing about the retaliation piece. That in the avoidance of grief, we will sometimes want to retaliate. And it's verboten to retaliate against our parents. That's for sure. So what we might do is to take out on our partner what really we would be taking out on our parents. So sometimes the retaliation gets displaced and winds up in the relationship and you're doing little mean things to your partner of the sex of the parent that you have an issue with. Now I'm thinking of that song by, sung by Bing Crosby. Those little mean things we were doing used to be part of the game, lending a spice to the wooing. Oh, but I don't know who's to blame. Lending a spice to the wooing. So sometimes those little mean things also add more drama to the relationship, bring up more adrenaline, and it's the opposite of the oxytocin, which is where longings go. Desires go to adrenaline and dopamine. They arouse that in the brain, whereas the fulfillment of longings brings the oxytocin, the the love hormone, that makes you feel more serene. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas was asked the question, St. Thomas Aquinas is a medieval Catholic theologian. He was asked the question, was there sex in the Garden of Eden before they ate the apple? This was his answer. Yes, there was. But without the compulsion and without the restlessness. What a beautiful way to describe the true longing for sex. It would be 
the love experience, but without compulsive, got to have it, and without restlessness, can't get enough. He said those, those two things came later. Neurotic ego brought those in. But it, it used to be just plain experience of the oxytocin. He didn't know that word, but you get the idea. So let's go back to the other question about the sexual part. So within the desire for sex, especially a a special kind of sex, like I want sex with domination, I want sex with submission, I want sex with toys, I want sex with a particular scene set up. When you look carefully into it, you might find a longing for a particular kind of love that you either did receive or did not receive and want. So it would really be important to look into any desire to understand what you're really longing for underneath it. So let's use a simple distinction. We could say that some desires, so two kinds of desire. Some desires are fulfilled in the fulfilling. Desire for bicycle is fulfilled by having a bicycle. Desire for bicycle is nothing more than desire for bicycle. Has no other meaning. Desire for flashlight is just for a flashlight, nothing else. When you go to the store, the person doesn't say, do you really want a flashlight or are you looking for enlightenment? (laughs) So it's just on one level. But there's also the desire for something that was not fulfilled and has left us with a deep longing or was fulfilled and we still have the longing and that shows us a deeper reality under what we were looking for. So it looks like Joe is looking for sex but actually Joe is looking to be held in the way his mother did not hold him or grandmother did hold him. But of course, Joe doesn't really know that. He's just so obsessed with the desire that he doesn't drop down into, well, what's this really about? What was, this is how you would ask the question. What was I really looking for during that era of my life when I just couldn't get enough sex? Don't think of it as, oh, that was just sowing my wild oats. That's, that's just hormones. Don't look at it that way. Ask yourself, 
what was I actually looking for? So, so this is very fascinating that some desires don't end in our picture of them, but are holding a deep, ongoing longing for an experience that will mimic what we had before or will finally present what was absent before. We're that kind of people. We do not forget. We know what we needed and we always know it and it doesn't go away. So you can look high and low but until you've state it to yourself, realize, oh, this is what I've been looking for, then um, you just um, keep looking in all the wrong places for what seems to be fulfilling, but ultimately is uh, disappointing, let's say. On the other hand, we have the Tibetan saying, disappointment is the fastest chariot to enlightenment. Because, of course, it's a letting go of the illusion in favor of the reality. Question? Did you still have your question? No. Okay. All right, maybe <clears throat> this is... <clears throat> Sort of embarrassing, but maybe it'll help me understand and might help people. But with sex, I'm looking where sex with crying link to people being just the depth of like to be crying together. <laughs> what would that? How do I look at that? Like, what am I? You really mean crying as for? in crying as in grieving? Mm, no, is it or tears of joy? You mean? Yeah, in fulfillment or joy or connection yeah it would be about the connection Thank you. so connectedness would be shall we say the deeper reality okay now it makes sense yeah oh so this is what I wanted I wanted connectedness but it looked like I wanted this particular sexual or any other kind of experience so well, just yeah. ask myself what was I looking for as a kid what was I really looking for then and now it'll be the same will it be deeper than connectedness communion becoming one in the, in the moment yeah thank you that kind of union alright well we're going to take a short break and then we will continue Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.